you know, Kentucky, um, obviously in recent years has elected a Republican government, except in the governor's office. And Andy Bashir, as Sean pointed out, has just been on the wrong side of a bunch of 70, 30, 80, 20 issues and his unwillingness to collaborate on that or really anything else, I think has, I think it holds Kentucky back. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. It is July 19th, 2023. I am Joe Arnold, your roundtable host. Scott Jennings chiming in here from New York. Kevin Grout, Jared Crawford, Sean Southard. And guys, before we hear from any of you, let's hear from the gubernatorial candidate for the Republican Party in Kentucky and breaking news in Kentucky today. Hey, it's Daniel. We are making a big announcement today. My lieutenant governor, I was looking for a true conservative with a strong track record of getting things done. Someone who shares our values and fights for what's right. And that's why I'm proud to announce State Senator Robbie Mills of Henderson as my running mate. Pro-coal, pro-life, pro-family, and a stalwart for Western Kentucky. Robbie will be a strong partner in our quest to defeat Andy Bashir and bring common sense back to the governor's office. Together, a Cameron Mills administration will start winning for Kentucky on day one. Join our campaign today, Cameron and Mills, your ticket for a better Kentucky. Scott, we'll hear from you for one second in your response, but Sean Souther, you were there today. You were able to actually uh, see the introduction of Robbie Mills and Daniel Cameron in front of a big crowd in Frankfurt. What was it like? What happened? You couldn't move around in the room, Joe. There were so many people there that were so excited to see Daniel Cameron and Robbie Mills together as they launched this campaign together. Uh, I think that a lot of conservatives and Republicans, right of center people, are going to be excited about Robbie joining the ticket. Uh, he's a rock-ribbed conservative with a history of beating legacy Democrats in a historically strong uh, Democrat region of the state. Um, he was elected to the state house in 2016 uh, and helped us flip the majority to be Republican control then. And uh, he then decided to run for state senate and took out uh, a longtime Democrat, the uh, state Senate minority leader, Dorsey Ridley, by 484 votes. Uh, and then he was he was reelected last cycle with 66% of the vote. So I think the people of, of, of Senate District 4 think that he's done a good job. Uh, he's, he's a respected leader who can work across the aisle to get things done, carried the, the bill to rebuild Western Kentucky, who we should acknowledge uh, today as we speak here in flyover country is, is suffering yet another a major disaster with uh, incredible flooding going on. But uh, Robbie Mills was, was there for them in 2021 when those terrible tornadoes came through and a Cameron Mills administration will be there for them uh, this, this November. So um, interesting choice by, by Daniel Cameron. I think it signals that it's, this is going to be a uh, rock ribbed uh, conservative campaign uh, with, with people who are focused on the values of the, the men, women, and children of 120 counties here in Kentucky. Scott, I would think you would agree that uh, that Robbie Mills' legislative record is pretty much as affirms what Sean is saying here in terms of his conservative bona fides. Yeah, Robbie uh, has been 
a leader on several issues in the General Assembly. He's become someone that if you want to pass a bill, if you're a conservative and you've got an idea and you want to pass a bill in Frankfurt, Robbie's a guy who knows how to get it done. That's why I was so intrigued by Daniel's choice because uh, he uh, picked a workhorse here in Robbie Mills. You talk to anybody in Frankfurt and they'll tell you, this is a guy who has friends all over the legislature. He knows how to work the committee system. And I think as a governing matter, that's going to serve Daniel very well because Robbie uh, kind of being that outlet to the General Assembly, which is a huge difference, Joe, uh, than what we have now, where you have a governor that's at odds with the General Assembly, constantly fighting with the General Assembly, vetoing their legislation. And if you if you listen to Robbie talk about it, and Sean may be able to comment on this from what he heard today, you know, can really attest to the fact that Andy Bashir doesn't even communicate with the General Assembly, doesn't go down the hall and say, hey, how can we work together on on different things? And I think the people of Kentucky want collaborative leadership in their government, uh, no matter what party you're in. I think they expect people to work together. And I think what Cameron and Mills are promising is, yes, you're going to have some cohesion across the branches of government. When does this matter? When you have an emergency. And we had an emergency or emergencies under Bashir, and he would not collaborate with the other officers or other branches of state government. I do think it led to some breakdowns uh, and things that could have been better for the people of Kentucky. Sean? Yeah, and I think I think when you look at the choice that Daniel made today with Robbie, particularly on the issues that Robbie has been in the thick of it in Frankfurt, are very, you know, they, they, they might be considered to be quote-unquote conservative priorities, but they're also priorities that are popular with most voters. So take, for instance, the fact that Robbie Mills was the lead sponsor who mandated that you must show a photo ID to vote. Every poll that you look at in this country shows that about 80% of Americans believe that you should be required to show a photo ID to vote. Robbie Mills got it done, and then Andy Bashir vetoed that bill. So who's extreme on that matter? It's Andy Bashir. Likewise, Robbie Mills has also been the lead champion of protecting women's sports. And if you look at what he did with the Save Our Women's Sports Act, he protected girls sports, banning boys from playing girls sports back in 2022. A position that this new poll that came out from the Liberal Patriot uh, online, a Substack account, shows a reputable poll done, conducted by YouGov shows that that position that Robbie Mills has is about what 70% of Americans believe. Guess who vetoed that bill? Andy Bashir. When we talk about extremes in this country and we talk about who's with the common sense side or the mainstream of America, that's Cameron Mills. Andy Bashir is on the wrong side of the voters on these matters, and he's on the wrong side of our Kentucky values. So I think it was a really smart pick by Daniel Cameron. And I can just tell you from being on the road with them today in Henderson in his hometown, I mean, there is a lot of excitement for Robbie Mills to be on this ticket. Yeah. Could you talk a little more about that, Sean, about, you know, being on the road with him in West Kentucky? Obviously, Robbie Mills is from West Kentucky, and that brings something new to the ticket. And uh, that that could really play well in, in the fall. Talk about, you know, the people wanting wanting somebody from from out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm from Western Kentucky. Scott's from Western Kentucky, and there's always been this sense out in Western Kentucky that Frankfurt forgets about Western Kentucky. 
And I think that by adding Robbie to the ticket, there is this sense that a Cameron Mills administration is going to represent the Western Kentucky in, in Frankfurt. But also, it, it's an important fact to note that if elected as lieutenant governor, Robbie Mills would be the only statewide constitutional officer that lives west of I-65. That is a huge fact. And when you when you think about that, you know, we, we, we have a great slate of Republican candidates this year and this cycle. We've all talked about this before, about the most qualified slate that we've ever had. Uh, but by having Robbie on the ticket and someone from Western Kentucky on the ticket, that brings some geographical balance that I think Western Kentucky is really excited for. I want to ask you guys, too, about um... – you know, I had heard uh, Daniel Cameron in a different interview before the pick was released talking about he really wanted someone who would work well with the General Assembly. And I think it's an important uh, fact to point out in terms of what has actually gotten accomplished in Frankfurt over the last several years. Um, and and, and the, I guess the question would be is, can you imagine how much more would get done if you were able to have someone with that kind of, of – uh, cooperation. Kevin, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the Republican supermajorities in Frankfurt right now get a lot done, but everything, they have to fight with the governor over it. Having a governor and a lieutenant governor who are willing to work with these legislators in the General Assembly is only going to help Kentucky. It's only going to deliver more common sense, pro-growth, pro-family policies that we all want. Scott, there's, it's actually not very common for a legislator to run for lieutenant governor in Kentucky. I, I, last one I can remember, I think, would maybe be Dan Mongiardo under Steve Bashir, but it's pretty, pretty rare. I mean, is this is this then a bolder or just a, just a I mean, what what's, what is, kind of a statement does that make as far as you're concerned? Well, I think it makes a statement from Daniel that he intends to be a governor that works with the General Assembly and not against it, and that he's interested in collaborating with the General Assembly. You know, Kentucky. Um, obviously in recent years has elected a Republican government except in the governor's office. And Andy Bashir, as Sean pointed out, has just been on the wrong side of a bunch of 70, 30, 80, 20 issues. And his unwillingness to collaborate on that or really anything else, I think has, I think it holds Kentucky back, just to be honest. I think it, valuable time is spent on sort of nonsense fighting Uh and it should be spent on collaboration. And so uh, you heard Robbie um, talk about a little, a little bit about this today. I, I think this is going to be part of his message moving forward is, look, we, you know, we have a big state government, got a huge executive branch. You've got uh, General Assembly out here making policy. We need collaboration. We don't need constant stiff arming, uh, whether it's on solving a big problem or, a big, or, or you're coming up with a solution on a big policy issue or dealing with a crisis. I mean, where we saw this really manifest itself was in Bashir sort of locking himself in a closet on COVID and declaring an emergency and trying to run the state without talking to the General Assembly, without talking to the other constitutional officers. It was wrong. He was ruled uh, out of order in court a number of times. The General Assembly has had to, to pin his ears back. That, that's not what people want. When you have massive emergency situations, you'd expect collaboration and conversation. Remember, the General Assembly gets elected too. And and Andy Bashir, you know, got less than 50% of the vote. Most of these legislators <laughs> got well beyond uh, 55, 60% in their districts. Th these people have 
electoral credibility too, and he won't even talk to them. So I, I think this message of collaboration is is a good one. Uh, I don't know whether it makes a huge difference about whether someone's been in the legislature or not. I know this. Robbie's reputation in Frankfurt is one of shepherding legislation through the committee system, through the amendment process, and getting things passed. That's his reputation. He's not a showboat. You know, he doesn't make lots of flashy, flashy speeches. He's a workhorse, and uh, and I think that's going to be a, you know, I think that's going to be a real uh, a real change from what we've got in Bashir. Jared. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's not just that, like, like, you know, hundreds of bills get filed every year and, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred get passed every year. One of the really impressive things about Robbie Mills is those sort of like Senate bills, one through five, one through 10. He's almost always the lead sponsor on one of those. And they're almost always becoming law. Sean mentioned the the voter ID bill. He worked very closely with Secretary uh, of State Michael Adams, too, on that. So he knows how to literally walk down the hall, right, which we know Andy Bashir is, is very reluctant to do. You know, look, when Republicans took over the, the state house in, in 2016, there was a lot of problems that they had to do. They had to make the state more business friendly and, you know, flip the tax code on its head. They had to clean up a, a voter system that had been, you know, basically left alone and and sort of left to die for many years by the Democrats. And people like Robbie Mills are not afraid to take on these big issues, right? That that Kentucky needs to take on if it wants to compete, you know, in this region or in the country. And again, those sort of top priority bills, things that Republicans have talked about doing for years for Kentucky, he's almost always one of the top names on those bills and has been really effective at getting them passed. So he knows how to work the system, but he's not afraid to take on the big issues either. Uh, and this is a state that still has a lot of big issues that it has to tackle. And again, I think he's going to be really effective, both working, you know, literally, you know, down the hallway, which as we've mentioned is non-existent right now. Scott in uh, governor Bashir's first campaign tweet after the announcement you brought up Matt Bevan and you brought up values. And I'm just curious what you think about uh, how this is going to kind of play out here. Well, Matt Bevan's not the governor, hasn't been the governor, and has nothing to do with Daniel Cameron's campaign. And as far as I know, hasn't been seen around the state, certainly the state capitol, since he gave that bizarre press conference back in January. So as much as Andy Bashir wants to run against Matt Bevan, I'm sorry to say the Republicans of Kentucky have nominated Daniel Cameron, and he has selected Robbie Mills. Uh, neither of who is Matt Bevan wearing a mask, as best I can tell. So I think it's just an effort. It's sort of like Joe Biden in Washington. He wants to turn every Republican into Donald Trump. Andy Bashir wants to turn every Republican in Kentucky into Matt Bevan. It's just, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Uh, and uh, and it, it really kind of shows how empty and vapid Andy Bashir's uh, campaign arguments are against this ticket on values. I'd love for Andy Bashir and Robbie Mills to have a conversation about values because, as Sean said, uh, all these issues that Robbie has been the leader on, you know, 70, 80 percent of Kentuckians agree with Robbie, 20 or 30 percent agree with Andy Bashir, And in politics, I'll take that equation. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to have it, this race be all about values because I know what Robbie's are and I know what Bashir's are and I know <laughs> I know who's got majority support in the state. I'd also love to put Robbie Mills up against Jacqueline Coleman, who, who was supposed to be this <laughs> expert in the, you know, in education uh, and like lost that position like six months on the job and 
Uh, kids are failing more than they ever have. They're absent more than they ever have. You know, uh, we've got more violence in our schools than ever before. And so she's just kind of like crawled back into the cave and it's like, eh, not my thing anymore. Uh, again, Robbie is a proven conservative leader with a track record of success. You know, Jacqueline Coleman, who was supposed to be this, you know, education savant who was supposed to save Kentucky's education system has literally destroyed the future of of so many kids between the lockdowns and, and uh, you know, so on and so forth, whether it be opposition to school choice, uh, you know. And so, again, putting their resumes up against each other, I mean, Robbie Mills is is just you know, heads above her too. This podcast being released on July 20th. So, so looking at the calendar guys, uh, what's coming up. We have fancy farm. Obviously it's on everyone's calendar first uh, weekend in August, but how does this now begin? I guess the Robbie Mills then begins campaigning immediately or what happens? They've already hit the trail. They are making stops all across the state. Um, and I think they're, they're, bringing Republican excitement to a fever pitch. I was at a Daniel Cameron event last week and I, I tell you the, the walls were shaken. There was so much enthusiasm in that room. You know, I think, um, and Sean maybe can speak to this a little bit more. Um, you know, what are the flashpoints in the campaign? You know, obviously the announcement is a big day and then the subsequent tour, which Robbie and Daniel are really making a lot of stops this week. So you can meet the ticket. Uh, fancy farms coming up. Uh, and all the events around that obviously is a big moment for for both both candidates. There'll be a debate, I'm sure, this fall between uh, Mills and Coleman. You know, speaking of Coleman, everybody tends to forget this person was appointed to Andy Bashir's cabinet, in addition to being lieutenant governor, and fired from Andy Bashir's cabinet for gross incompetence. I mean, he's sort of only running with her because he didn't want the optics of firing her. But you know, there's nobody in Frankfurt who will tell you anything other than this. He is a complete and total buffoon and a failure. I mean, he picked her before so that he could, for a talking point, she was literally picked so she could be a bullet point on a press release. And that's it. And the most, uh, the most, uh, I don't know, uh, notable thing she's done in Frankfurt is give her hairdresser special access to the unemployment system. I mean, when everybody else is having to wait in line, that's it. She's been a total failure and she's a non-entity at best. So I think with Robbie, you get somebody substantive and with Coleman, you know, you get some vapid talking point that, you know, is, is of little consequence and certainly is, is, as was said, is out of touch on the issues uh, on education and everything else. Do we know anything up yet about, uh, is, it, is it too early as far as, will there be any debates? There's usually one or two. Yeah. I'm not sure what the, I, I haven't seen anything publicly announced yet. Of course, now that the, Running mates are out there. We'll go from there. Sean, I know that you have had a very busy day. And any other closing thoughts before we let you go? Cameron Mills, your ticket for a better Kentucky. Your ticket for uh, off the bench three pointers. I was going to say Cameron Mills, though. <laughs> <laughs> have we heard he, uh, from Cameron Mills? He did but, tweet. Was listening outside of Kentucky, Cameron Mills was a University of Kentucky Wildcat basketball player about, what, two decades ago? Yeah. Cameron Mills, let me look up his stats. He, he, he played from 94 to 98 for the Cats. He appeared, uh, but, he, but he, he appeared in 31 games in the 96-97 season, and he appeared in 38 games in the 97-98 season. He was there for some good teams. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you, if you're not old enough to remember, but Cameron was a, he was kind of a shooter. 
uh, and uh, and really had uh, you know uh, was kind of a fan favorite. Uh, the fans really liked him, and I'm and as I saw a quote from him today, like he still gets mobbed everywhere he goes. The fans really mm-hmm. did love. Fans love Cameron Mills. Mills. Cameron Mills. He, he, did, he he did deny that he was not running for governor of Kentucky today. Uh, which right? Apparently, there was some confusion. He got a lot of text <laughs> messages, people thinking. Uh, he said that he thought it was funny and fun and interesting. And he said that this is going to be a very irritating year for him. <laughs> you know, looking back on his stats, by the way, not to, not to nerd out on sports stats in 96, 97, he was 21 for 38 from two points and 15 for 40 from three points. I mean, he was a pretty good shooter. I mean, he didn't score that many points per game as obviously stacked teams back then, but. Dude, cause the dude could shoot a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit of a shoot. Maybe we'll see if we can get Cameron on here at some point and <laughs> regale us with some tales of his old uh, college hoops days. I guess the only brand on the other side would be if, if Bashir would name Funeral Home as his lieutenant governor, right? Because that would be the only brand that's known in Kentucky from back home. All right. Uh, on see you, Joe. Note. See you, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sean's not even going to respond to that. That's a, the Bashir family runs a funeral home back home there in Dawson Springs. There, Scott, you know about that. All right, Sean's uh, left us. Uh, Scott might in a moment after if I keep talking. Scott, you were uh, you're in New York tonight, right? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm up here tonight. Uh, gonna do some TV over the next few days. Obviously, we're uh, watching the news uh, uh, on Donald Trump in January 6th, which I know we're going to talk about. But earlier this week, I was in Columbia, South Carolina with Jake Tapper, who had a big interview with Ron DeSantis on CNN. Ron's uh, Governor DeSantis has uh, decided to venture out and, and do some interviews with what he would call the corporate media. <laughs> and uh, he started with Jake Tapper. And I, I, I thought he acquitted himself uh, very well, sounded like a normal person, which you know, I recognize sounds like a low bar, but in today's politics, <laughs> you know, may, may do us some good. Let's hear from him first, and then we'll come back and talk about this, sort of like his, his impression here. The first, one of the first sound bites we have for you is Jake Tapper asking him about his military plan and uh, DeSantis talking about his concerns about recruiting and morale. So I think you've had a big problem uh, with morale. You clearly have a problem with recruiting. And at this levels, everybody has acknowledged these recruiting levels are at a crisis. Why is that the case? I think it's because people see the military losing its way, not focusing on the mission and focusing on a lot of these other things, which, man, we see that in other aspects of society as well. People want to join the military, I think, because they think it's something different. And I think some of the civilian leaders in the military are trying to have the military mimic corporate America academia. That's ultimately not going to work. Let's talk about this. Scott, it's interesting to me uh, as far as this this take. It's interesting to hear DeSantis speak for himself and being able to define these things. Because ultimately, in the in the mainstream or corporate media, as as he would put it, like you said, this would have been described as someone who's coming off off the rails, out of control, screaming, you know, and and against. He, he, he sounds extraordinarily reasonable and reasoned in his responses. There, that, that doesn't sound like a culture warrior. It puts as somebody who's just trying to cry for normalcy. Yeah, he, uh, he he did he did sound very reasonable to me, and he sounded um, thoughtful. You know, like hey, I, I thought. Of, by the way, he's the only veteran in the race, and um, or I guess the only person who served in a in an active war zone. Um, Mike Pence was in the military too, I think, but uh, was he not? You're shaking your head, guard, Kevin. Perhaps I, 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 I know his, Mike Pence his son and yeah. his son-in-law are. 
We'll check it actively out. surveying. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe he is the only one. Anyway, uh, but 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 I think he speaks with a lot of authority on these issues, and and obviously a lot of thoughtfulness on the issues. Um, and you know, if you listen, everything he was saying about the culture of the military and sort of how Republicans see it. I mean, that I said to Jake on the air. I mean, this touches all the pleasure centers of, of a Republican voter right now because there is a belief that the military, like every other institution, has been invaded by this woke culture. And that the woke culture takes precedent uh, over whatever the mission of that institution is. The mission of the military is to fight and win, to be lethal, to defend a nation. And in DeSantis's view, the mission of the military is not to uh, be a vehicle for the latest, you know, nutty culture, you know, cultural radical ideology idea that that the left has. And so when he says those things, he does it in a thoughtful way. Sounds eminently reasonable. But I'm just telling you, Republicans who might show up in a Jim and Iowa to vote in the caucus in January. That's exactly how they see it and what they would want to hear from a future commander in chief. Quick fact check on Mike Pence. His father served in the U S army during the Korean war, received the bronze star. As you said, I think one of his sons uh, also serves in the military, but Mike Pence graduated from law school and became a uh, ah, yeah, an attorney yeah. there. So there you so, go. So, so, so DeSantis, so DeSantis is the only veteran. That's, that's kind of an interesting thing yeah. in the campaign and of it. Just one, just one veteran in the campaign. Interesting. Well, so, Pence did serve with Trump, though, as far as just, I mean, he, he has battle scars from that, right? <laughs> Scott, can you talk about DeSantis's, um, you know, just even willingness to do this interview? He had avoided these kind of, as like you said, corporate interviews in the past. Uh, the media is trying to paint, you know, some of his, his staff shuffles lately as the death knell of his campaign. Um, and, you know, people are trying to say that this is the dying gasp. This is his last shot. Do, do you think that's that's going on here? Why, why do you think he decided to sit down with Jake Tapper, who I think both both Tapper and DeSantis did a great job in this interview? It was it was good to watch. I think um, DeSantis, when they were starting out, did believe they could run a campaign without the uh, engagement of the corporate media. In fact, they would they were saying at the time, like, we're not going to we're not going to give the gatekeepers, the satisfaction of, of being, you know, keeping the gate for this campaign. Republicans don't like corporate media. We're not going to do it. I remember doing some interviews at the time thinking, oh, I think Republicans will like the idea of that, but it's a high wire act because no one's ever tried it before. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, we don't know if it's going to work or not. And I guess they have ultimately judged Kevin that it's not working or that he just has to do more. I mean, that, the reality is he's facing a daunting task. Donald Trump right now is sitting between 50 and 55 in the Republican primary nationally. Maybe he's a little lower than that in a couple of states. And DeSantis just has to do more if he if he's going to get close to Trump. In my opinion, it's all aimed at Iowa. I mean, to me, right now, it's Iowa or bust. I mean, he's got to get close to or defeat Trump in Iowa. And so whether it's a reset or a rethinking or a whatever, it's just they have got to do more or as much as you can uh, to influence what is going to happen in Iowa. And, you know, in recent years, and Trump was kind of this way back in 16, um, there has been some success from people who have just kind of gone with a flood the zone. You know, like just do everything, do every podcast, do every TV show, talk to any reporter, do radio. Uh, and and some of the candidates are doing that now. Ramaswamy is certainly doing right. that. But DeSantis handles himself well enough to do it. I mean, he could do it if he wanted to do it. It is time consuming and, uh, uh, and it, and it does change the nature of your campaign schedule. But at this point, 
Uh, I just think they have to find another gear, and that's what they're trying to do. So that that strategic shift or reset could actually be the biggest news that came out of this interview, that we might yeah, see a new it, stage of the DeSantis campaign. Yeah, I don't think he actually made a ton. I don't think he did anything groundbreaking here, other than, Joe, I agree with your point. Uh, just kind of sounding like a normal person or how a normal person might sort of work through or analyze something and, and verbalize that is a win. Because obviously Trump's interviews are bonkers and, you know, Joe Biden falls asleep in his interviews or in the Oval Office or whatever. And uh, and and so, they, I mean, both of them are just at the extreme ends of just bonkers. Like you can't believe these conversations are happening. Then DeSantis shows up and it, it just sounds like he's, you know, just having a normal chat with you. That actually may be the most resonant thing that happened. And, and because he did it with Jake, who is a tough interviewer, that might embolden him to do it more. I'll, I'll, it won't surprise me if they go out and do it, do a few more out there. Yeah. He, the other thing too about DeSantis is he gets to talk about these policy issues. Like Scott, you said the Trump interviews are, are bonkers and the Biden interviews kind of put you to put everybody to sleep. When Trump does a town hall or an interview, it's like 45 minutes of, all right, let's get through all your indictments, all the accusations against you. Then let's do a little bit on January 6th. Then we'll do maybe like 15, 20 minutes on the 2020 election. And then by that time, it's over. DeSantis, again, as we've always, as we've said continuously, doesn't have that baggage. So he can start talking about what his actual vision as a president will be, right? So let's talk about recruitment issues in the military. Maybe Trump has an up plan about that, but they, you know, his interviews, there's so much baggage he has every single week. He doesn't even get to to lay out a presidential plan. You know, who knows if he has one, but DeSantis, both with Tucker earlier in the week and then with, with Tapper, really lays out these policy ideas well. I thought, uh, I don't know if it was serendipitous or, or by design, but I thought DeSantis doing the military stuff with Jake kind of on the heels of the House Republicans passing the NDAA with, you know, some of their amendments that are, you know, trying to trying to rip the social engineering ideology out of the military. It's in the news. It's like, in, it's kind of part of the zeitgeist right now with DeSantis jumping on it. I thought the timing of it worked well for him uh, because obviously Republicans are talking about it. Republicans are very happy with what the house uh, GOP did. I don't know if this stuff will survive the final NDAA conference, but, but it's, it's, it's sort of at the top of Republican minds right now. So I think DeSantis gets a little float out of that too. So back to the normalcy, reasonable, uh, you know, the, the assets there. The question, I guess, Scott, for you is that that's certainly appealing to me. I mean, make America boring again would be, you know, I'd, I'd be fine with that. Somebody who can actually put together a sentence, get to work, you know, not work, not, not be out and just kind of spouting. I mean, I am the American people when it comes to the polls that show people who don't want Trump or Biden in 2024 but the question is that's what the polls say but in terms of who's actually going to nominate the the nominee who's going to choose the nominee are there enough people of my mindset that would go for a DeSantis who's normal rather than somebody who's obviously flawed and and you know I think both of them are both of the front runners right now are people I I couldn't vote for uh, I think there's a lot of hunger for somebody other than Trump and Biden. I mean, you know, all the polling shows the American people are desperate for the two parties not to renominate these guys for a rematch. So, yeah, I do think there's a hunger for new candidates, whether you call them normal or something else broadly. Now, within the political parties themselves, 
you know, structurally right now, Trump is crushing Mm -hmm. and it's going to be hard to defeat him in Iowa or anywhere else. And Biden, they've changed the rules and engineered the thing for Biden not to even have to face a real primary. So the political system is giving us exactly what you don't want, but it's also giving us exactly what most Americans don't want. Uh, So I guess somewhere out there, I sort of feel like the opening still exists for someone like DeSantis. I think they're all underdogs, whether you're DeSantis or Tim Scott or anybody else. I was on TV with a pollster named Kristen Soltis Anderson this week. And, you know, she was saying, you know, it's just not clear to me if, if all the stuff going on with Trump is ever going to just create so much weight that it crushes him, that basically he just collapses and Republicans just sort of in mass say, we can't do this again. It's just, it's too much. It hasn't happened yet. It's not been too much yet. And obviously we're on the cusp of J6 indictments from Jack Smith. Will that make it too much? There's no evidence that it will. Uh, But if you're DeSantis, I think what you're trying to do is put yourself in a position just to pick up the pieces if that happens. If if he collapses, if he fades, if the Republican electorate's like, ah, we just can't do this again. We don't want to lose to Joe Biden. I think I still think DeSantis, he's the best positioned person to take advantage of it. So DeSantis is the Gavin Newsom then of the Republican Party. Well they, all, says, well, they all are. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's why they're all running, because they think somewhere, you know, if, if lightning strikes and Trump implodes, you know, if, if you're in this race, you believe well, I'm just here. to I'm here to pick up that ball and tip it in at the buzzer. And sometimes these strategies just don't work in our Republican gubernatorial primary in Kentucky this year. That was the Ryan Quarrel strategy. If something bad happens, I'll tip it in. It didn't work. But, you know, he finished second. Um, uh, I think that's what some of these campaigns must be thinking because I doubt any of these campaigns could run a TV ad or, or make an argument that would alter anyone's perception of Trump. I mean, that's the thing. He's so defined that how do you actually persuade someone to like him or not like him? I don't, I don't even know how you would begin to do that at this point. So the interview with Jake Tapper, Jake perhaps thought he had him on some controversial military, uh, you know, or at least controversial in the mainstream media takes. The other thing is on abortion. And he asked him about that. And I thought DeSantis was ready to go, basically saying this is what's at stake in this election and on that issue. Much headway. I think the danger from Congress is if we lose the election, they're going to try to nationalize abortion up until the moment of birth. And in some liberal states, you actually have post birth abortions. And I think that that's wrong. Also, with respect to the military thing that we talked about, we're going to reverse the abortion tourism policy in the Department of Defense. They are actually paying people uh, to go and get abortions with American tax dollars as part of the military. They won't even pay you. You lose a loved one. You don't get that type of time off to be able to go uh, to do funerals. And so we're going to continue to stand for for life, and we're going to make sure that everybody knows that. So I said... The question is, you know, as we know, Scott, after the the Dobbs case and uh, the Roe v. Wade reversal, that uh, that was a factor uh, in the in the midterm losses for Republicans is where is abortion on this as as these candidates are making their calculus? I guess right now they're only focusing on the primary win, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're Ron DeSantis, you got one concern: how do I win Iowa, or how do I stay close to Trump in Iowa? Other than that, you got no concerns. And I, I've heard all these people this week, Kevin and Jared, you know, saying, "Oh, he's." He's moving too far to the right, and right. the center, man, that, I, you cannot worry about a general election campaign that doesn't presently exist. You know, 
all, all candidates who come through primaries eventually have, you have some bills that come due. But you have to you have to get you have to escape the primary, and so I I just think DeSantis's record on life on pro life issues and his statements on it is what you got to that's where you got to be that's where you got to be and uh, and there's no question about his record there. So I, I think he's right on for what he's got to do in Iowa, Kevin. Right, and I think that he's not necessarily even attacking Trump in it, so he's not getting the blowback from it. He's just staking out what is a traditionally conservative position and talking about his record of accomplishment on abortion, on schools, on uh, economic development. I mean, he, he is saying, you know, we all like Trump for a lot of things, but I'm an actual conservative. And if you want more conservative wins in the White House, then there's one camp you can go to, and it's mine. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Donald Trump, uh, gentlemen. Uh, certainly the president, former president, making some news when he released ahead of time, like he did, I guess the last time he was going to be indicted, that he's received this letter from the special prosecutor here. This is about ready to happen. Um, on a Sunday night, he, he wanted you to know yeah. he got this letter on a Sunday night when he was just at home with his family, you know, in his smoking jacket with his feet up and Fido at the feet. At <laughs> Do they deliver letters on a Sunday night? So it's, it's better than the postal service that I have in my neighborhood. How does that work? <laughs> I think if you get a, I think if you get a target letter from the DOJ, I just I have a belief that it comes in something other than a first class <laughs> mail. Like I, I have to believe. I, I mean, I don't, so. I don't want I don't want to find out, but my assumption is it comes from a courier. I don't know. That's Good question. So, Joe, could you commit a couple of federal crimes to find out and report back? Yeah, next there week you on go. The exactly. There you go. <laughs> I got a subpoena once, and it was handed right to me on my desk. So there you, you go. There you have it. You get subpoenaed? Not myself, but. Uh, I was the only person oh. available <laughs> to receive around. it. I would, you know, I was subpoenaed back in the aughts when I was working for Bush, but I was subpoenaed by Congress, and they uh, delivered a letter to my attorney. I found I was playing golf at Pinaral State Park uh, Golf Course with my dad, where there's like virtually no cell service out there. So I was out there with my dad, and my lawyer called. And he was, you know, I was like hearing every other word, but I. I certainly found out. I got the gist of it. So, yeah, I, I thought I, I thought Patrick Leahy hand delivered that to you, Scott. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was a different meeting. Uh, uh, so I'm going to jump right ahead to my my view on Trump here and 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 these various legal problems and challenges. This is actually mirroring the the chaos theory or the chaos strategy, if you want to call it that, of the Trump presidency. I think there is so much. Black. There's so much in the air. There's just so much noise. It's so difficult to keep track of all of this. I think it benefits Trump because it's just like it's all the same kind of whatever. Unless, and, and this is where I think that this it's on. This is where the prosecution, or I don't know who else is going to, you know, be accountable to the media. I guess they have a responsibility, or this is where a big role will be. Can they cut through and explain why this case or I, I've always, is this the Georgia case or is this a different case? Because Jan, January 6th is January 6th and there's Georgia's Georgia and then, but where do we stand on this? In other words, I, I, I've lost track now of what case is which. Yeah. Well, I mean, what the reporting is, is that, is that Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, who's, he's got two cases. He's got the documents Mar-a-Lago case, which he's already indicted in. And he's got the broad investigation of what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. And like hundreds of people have been charged with crimes for January 6th, the, the rioters. 
but obviously the big question is, is he ever going to go after Trump and, and anybody around Trump? And, you know, for a long time, a lot of lawyers thought maybe Trump, you know, what would they charge him with? And now there's some reporting about, you know, the prospect of defrauding the United States, interrupting an official proceeding. There's some new reporting tonight that he could be charged with this law that was uh, passed, I guess, after the Civil War to give Southern law enforcement an opportunity to go after KKK for, you know, trying to uh, stop African-Americans voting in elections, like a voter fraud statute that's sort of a post-Civil War era. That's in the Times tonight. Uh, and when you get a target letter, that that most often portends uh, an indictment is looming. So, um, you know, we haven't seen the charges. We haven't seen the evidence. Hard to say, you know, whether this is real or or whatever. But uh, obviously, uh, you know, this will be the third go-around for him on indictments this year. And then, as you, you brought up Georgia, I mean, based on what Fannie Willis, the prosecutor in Atlanta, has said, and she's, it, it looks like she's holding the first two weeks of August to do indictments there. So you could see Trump indicted between now and the end of the month here in Washington, and then the first two weeks of August he could have indicted in Georgia. So he'd be carrying four sets of indictments in, <laughs> you know, one in Florida, Washington, New York, and Atlanta. I mean, it's it's really sort of a crushing amount of legal. Uh, uh, distraction uh, for the Republican frontrunner. So the question I have about this this Jack Smith indictment, and obviously we haven't seen it, it it sounds like there may be some legal backflips in there talking about, you know, 1860s laws. Um, but I'm interested to hear what will be new that he presents. I mean, obviously the House under Democrat leadership had a whole January 6th committee where they, you know, to some ad nauseum looked into January 6th, looked into that day. We knew everything about it. So the question is, what what here would be new? What was uncovered that would tie the former president to some specific crime that happened that day? Um, I mean, I know like former Vice President Pence spoke uh, with Jack Smith and his team, which I don't think he spoke with the committee. But beyond that, what is there any indication out there that any of you guys know what what might be new here? Well, the, the, there has been no evidence released, and obviously no indictment has been released, so we haven't seen any of that yet. I mean, I guess, you know, there's multiple things. There's the, you know, what connection did he have to whipping up the mob that went to the Capitol? And was the purpose behind that corrupt? You know, was the purpose behind that to get them to essentially stop Congress from acting? Uh, I also think this fake electors business out there, you know, was he personally involved in recruiting fake electors to uh, essentially try to, I guess it would be, look at it this way. Like, I, I think I think this statute I was referencing sort of goes back to the idea of, of, you know, Americans have a right to have their votes counted equally and properly. And so if you basically are having these fake electors or you're, you're trying to overturn the outcome of, a, of a, an election in which votes have already been counted, you're essentially depriving any individual voter of their right to have their vote fully and fairly counted. So... I guess, but yeah, again, we haven't seen the evidence. We we really don't know. I, I mean, there's been some rumors that, like Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, had flipped and, and was cooperating. There's Giuliani's been in. We know he talked to the prosecutors. He has not received a target letter, as far as anybody knows. But anybody's guess, Kevin, honestly, and uh, and that's why part of the reason I'm up I'm up in New York. I'm sort of playing the waiting game here to see uh, to see how it's going to play out over the next few days. Let's go to walk back to Washington D.C. and talk about. Uh, I, I have speaking of having a hard time keeping track of things. I didn't know if 
uh, oh, I now I forgot her name now. The progressive uh, caucus leader. It's at uh, Pramila Jayapal. Jayapal. I was thinking that she apologized for calling Israel a racist state, but then later on, it was like her walk back was kind of walk back, and I I couldn't quite out of the Joe Biden playbook. <laughs> Yeah, Jayapal, you know, made a. She was at a, a left wing progressive conference, and and you know when they get amongst themselves and they get all whipped up, you you, you can see like what bubbles immediately to the surface: anti semitism. I mean, it, it happens every time, and then they people criticize them, then they try to, well, I didn't really mean that, and then they get uncomfortable with the fact that they walked it back, and but it's a real problem for Democrats, mm-hmm. and even on the floor of the House today. Uh, I guess the there was a, a resolution to support, you know, Israel or whatever, and and nine people voted against it. Every single one of them was a Democrat. And so there is a strain of anti-Semitism that is strong on the left, and they boycotted Herzog's speech, and and it it, it just exists. And, uh, and and oftentimes anti-Semitism is also found where conspiracy theorists are found. And I just think the squad and these progressives in the House. They are full of conspiracy theorists. There's anti-Semitism. They don't even try to hide. And the Democratic Party, in my opinion, never meaningfully deals with it. And and they're they're constantly making apologies for it, or you know, constantly like trying to, oh, it's not a huge looks, you know, look over here, look over here. But it's a real thing. That's that's the big problem. Like we know the, these nine or ten members, and they're all the progressives. They they're pretty frequent with the anti-Semitic remarks there. And we, we, we come to expect it from them, but where's the rest of the house democratic caucus? Where are their leaders condemning this and saying that we don't believe it? Uh, and honestly, I mean, Jayapal, like Joe mentioned, she's not just a, a rank and file member. She is an elected leader of one of their caucuses, a major player in the house Democrats. Why does she still have that job? Why hasn't she been kicked out of that? And, and you know, whenever anybody on the right says anything about anything, Everybody, all, all the conversation in the hallway is, well, are you going to condemn it? Are you going to say that it's bad? Are you going to you know, say that they're the worst person? You'll never talk to them again. Where is that on the left? Where is Hakeem Jeffries and Nancy Pelosi saying that, you know, we're condemning her and she should never say anything or hold any sort of leadership position in the House again? There was somewhat of a universal condemning of RFK Jr. for, uh, I guess, what was perceived as. And I'm, I don't know. If, I think maybe, Scott, you had to comment on this on CNN. Yeah, because he he made comments that 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 COVID was a, a engineered virus to target certain ethnic groups and 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 spare others. I guess the among those being spared were were Jewish people. I think that's the, is that is that the nuts and bolts of it there. Yeah, Democrats you know fell all over themselves to criticize him, but of course it's convenient because he's running against. Uh, Joe Biden. So it's convenient, you know, because they're, they're basically trying to, to help Joe Biden, I guess, or they want to show that they support Joe Biden. What's more inconvenient is to try to drum this anti-Semitism out of the House Republican Congress. I mean, RFK is not elected to anything. It's sort of easy to throw him under the bus. Uh, uh, it, it is amazing to me, though, RFK Jr. has been a conspiracy theorist, a kook, a nut of the highest order for decades. And, and it's only now that Democrats are willing to disavow him. I mean, he's been an environmental nut. He was the architect of the conspiracy theory in 2004 that Karl Rove had, like, personally programmed the voting machines in Ohio to steal the election. You know, he's obviously been a vaccine conspiracy theorist and 
uh, now this. And all of a sudden, Democrats, oh, we're going to come after RFK. Yeah, where have you been? Republicans have hated this guy for a long time. <laughs> now, welcome, welcome to the recognition that this guy's a lunatic. I do find it interesting, though, that I guess on because the issue is COVID, you know, that suddenly they find their their voice because this is, I guess, is still the COVID party, you know, in terms of, you know, of what it also confuses me on this, though, is it's one thing to say that the COVID vaccine was somehow this or that. But he's just talking about the the, the virus itself. I'm, I'm not defending it, but I, I have a hard time following some of these things because ultimately and there's I think there's even new reporting coming out this week. I mean, more and more and more is leading to the to the idea that this, in fact, was a man-made or, or at least genetically engineered virus that escaped from the Wuhan lab. And I wouldn't go as I mean, yeah, I, the, I the, the, the Biden administration put a 10 year moratorium on sending any U.S. tax dollars over there after calling right. anybody so who, who suggested right. it came from that lab yeah. a racist. So, right. That's that's my whole I mean, again, I'm not I'm not I'm not. Uh, speaking up here for RFK Jr., but my whole point is it's pretty clear that that this was something that was developed in the Wuhan Virology Lab, and I don't trust the Chinese not to have released it purposefully. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm not saying that they did, but I'm not saying, but do I trust them? No. So I don't know. We'll move on. You know, I, I know we're, I know, Joe. I know we're heading for the exits on the pod this week, yes. but on COVID, just because, I, I, and. Uh, I'll just read it to you real quick. I don't know if you guys caught this, but speaking of COVID conspiracy theories, you know, it was, it was during the pandemic, there were some people questioning whether all of the COVID deaths that were being reported were actually deaths due to COVID. There was some thought at the time that maybe they were being overcounted because like, if you died of say, I don't know, a head injury in a car crash and you had COVID, they counted you as a COVID death. Well, 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 New York Times and CDC this week finally admitted that there was massive overcounting. In fact, about one-third of official COVID deaths, hundreds of thousands of deaths, were not due to COVID. The CDC's main COVID webpage currently estimates about 80 people per day are dying from the virus, which is equal to about 1% of overall daily deaths. However, and here's the, the kicker, the official number is probably an exaggeration because it includes people who had virus when they died, even though it was not the underlying cause of death. Other CDC data suggests that almost one-third of official COVID deaths have fallen into this category. So yet another thing but if you said it at the time, you were called a nut and a conspiracy theorist, and you were run out of the town square, finally the admission that they were vastly overcounting this for the purpose of, I think, hyping it for political reasons. But it's pretty sad. I mean, that's the thing. We were in an emergency, and there were people who were misleading the American people about the data. Pretty sad. You know, we talked about some anti-Semitism, perhaps some racism. We talked about covid there perhaps is a is a through line here because it was during COVID that the Capitol was shut down in uh, Frankfurt, and there was a I think the Huffington Post is reporting on the Kentucky gubernatorial race in some regard, and they were reporting Scott on they were they, they did an open records request, or I should say they were handed an open records request that someone else had done for them mm -hmm. um, that. Uh, that that was trying to count the number of times that Daniel Cameron had used his official key fob 
to get into the Capitol mm-hmm. since he's become attorney general, including the time it was shut down for COVID things. I help me sort through the story. I couldn't quite tell what their point was. Well, they, they, yes, they were um, wanting to know if Daniel was scanning his key fob and he doesn't, you know why? Because I assume the door's already open when he gets there or the security staff opens the door or the staff has already opened up the office. So it's kind of a stupid idiot thing. And yet the Huffington Post wrote it, I, I believe, because it's racist. I mean, it's inherently racist uh, because what they want you to think is, oh, look at this. Look at this black guy. Then show up to work. You know what they say about the black folks not working hard. And Daniel Cameron made that point at one of his press conferences today. I, I just think some of these white liberal national r- reporters, and I use that term loosely, are so angry about the idea of an African-American Republican possibly being governor that they they just can't help it but dip into racist tropes in their reporting to try to beat this guy. And the reality is Andy Bashir, as far as I know, has got the same kind of key fob, but like he's got the same issue. He's got security guards and staff. And, right. you know, it's not like these well, guys are showing up and scanning. Them. I mean, it's just a stupid idea. And yet somehow it makes it into a national website. This is, it, to me, well, it's blatant racism. Yeah. And one beyond that, I mean, just in terms of any of us who've actually been to the Kentucky Capitol, I mean, the, the door to the Capitol, which is basically the door that's the closest to the governor's mansion, that little parking lot over there, that's the closest to the attorney general's office over there on the right. That you that door is not locked, at least during business hours. You walk in, there's a, there's a state uh, police uh, officer there who's the trooper who's, who checks you in. Or I would think he would, if he sees a turn, he's going to wave you, wave him through. But there's not a fob situation there anyway. I'm just saying, it's just from a logistics standpoint, there's somebody reporting from wherever the Huffington Post is located. I'm not sure, and the, the, clearly, but I guess they have this idea of like this is an office building that he has to fob his way into every day. That's just weird, Jared. Yeah, this is such bogus, like, you know, oppo, whatever that was handed to him. Austin Horn, who we've complimented many times in the last couple of weeks tweeted about this almost immediately that he looked into this must've been tipped off that Daniel hadn't swiped his card. Also looked at governor Bashir who has never swiped his card either in the exact same time frame. So both of them aren't swiping their cards seemingly because of either security or, you know, Joe, like you just laid out, right. It's just somebody's letting them in. Daniel obviously, you know, very famously kind of has security because of the threats that he's faced. One of the, the most threatened uh, politicians in, in the country. Uh, and so again, it, it is such a nothing story uh, that again, just plays into this sort of racist trope. On that note, any closing thoughts from anyone before Scott, Scott you have to get you hustled to the studio here for CNN. We're recording this at 10 34 PM on July 19th. Anything before we go? Well, we didn't talk about it this week, but I paid pretty close attention to the house Republican whistleblower uh, hearings today that Jamie Comer was involved in and other House Republicans. So maybe we should talk about that next week. Um, what else caught my attention this week? We talked about Robbie. Uh, was in South Carolina. We got January sixth coming up. It's going to be a it's going to be an interesting few days here. Uh, uh, I guess in the in the presidential contest, and we'll see if it moves any numbers in the polling. But uh, we'll talk about that stuff next week, Joe. And then after that, we've got Fancy Farm on the. Uh, uh, on the menu. So uh, we'll do a setup show and then hopefully we'll do our uh, second live from fancy farm uh, show that weekend. 
So my impression, uh, my takeaway from Scott's appearance in South Carolina on the rooftop across from the state capitol with Jake Tapper and the panel was that it was final confirmation that CNN has declared COVID officially over because back when COVID was going on, you had people seated like entire, like you have to like a 15 foot pole away from each other. Okay. Kristen Soltis Anderson, I think was on your lap and Bakari, I think was on her lap. I mean, you guys, you couldn't have been any tighter on that. Yeah. I said, boy, COVID is over. We were sitting very close together and, uh, and we were out on the balcony of this building that's across the street from the, South Carolina State Capitol. So we were outside, uh, if that helps you uh, at all. <laughs> With your COVID uh, police in there, Joe. Yeah, uh, but uh, but yes, we were definitely shoulder to shoulder there. I had, by, by the way, I had fun with Bakari. Bakari lives in Columbia, and uh, it was fun to be there with him. And then uh, Kristen, who I adore and think she's terrific, uh, pollster and, and does great on television. So it was a great panel, and Jake did well. And it was fun to be out on the road, kind of like on the campaign trail. Because, uh, you know, we didn't get to do a lot of this in 2020 because the world shut down. And we were all stuck in our little boxes. So looking forward to more of that uh, during the presidential here. For Kevin and Jared and Scott, I'm Joe. Thanks for listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.